again, welcome uh, tonight as we uh, continue our series, uh, Typology. We're seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, and um, we have talked about how we define what typology is uh, a thousand different ways, and some are very academic in their writing, and others are just kind of nutshell, which is more of my lane. And so uh, the way that we define typology is simply this. We're looking at events that happen in the Old Testament that find their fulfillment or a connection to Jesus in the New Testament. That's all that typology is. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to uh, look at what is called the manna in the wilderness. Many of you have heard this uh, story. We're going to read through it tonight. So if you have your Bibles or in your notes, uh, we're going to be in in excerpts from uh, Exodus chapter 16 tonight. Uh, I want to give you a a little bit of a backdrop, a little bit of uh, context here so that you'll understand where where we've been before we go to where we're going. Uh, Moses has been raised up by the Lord to deliver the people of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. The people have been in bondage in in Egypt for um, hundreds of years at this point. And so God raises up a deliverer and he sets them out on this journey. They're going to go to a land that God has given them to be their own. And in the midst of a journey that should have just taken a a couple of months at best, ends up taking four generations, 40 years of time goes by before they are able to arrive in the land that God had promised them. And so as they're in the wilderness, what they find is that they become very disgruntled with the situations, the circumstances surrounding them. They're upset not only with um, how long the journey's taken, but they're upset with the food that they're having to eat, the, you know, what they're having to drink, the people that are around them, the leadership on so many levels They're frustrated, and so after a stint of complaining, the Bible uses the term grumbling against the Lord, against Moses, against Aaron and the leaders of Israel. Uh, The Bible says that the Lord uh, comes down and he speaks to Moses about what he is going to provide for the people, and this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 16. The scripture says, then the Lord said to Moses, after all the grumbling and complaining, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So this is what the Lord is saying. He's saying, look, there are seven days in a week. The first five days of the week, you need to gather just what you need for each individual day. Day one, gather just what you need. Day two, gather just what you need. All the way for five days. But on the sixth day, I need you to gather double. Because on the seventh day, I don't want you gathering anything. I don't want you to work on the seventh day. that You're going to honor the Sabbath and you're going to keep it holy. And so he sets out this plan for them. And he says that he sets out this plan for them as a means to test them. And we'll touch on this a little bit later. And so then the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. So I want you to tell them at twilight you will eat meat. And in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So that evening quail came down and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone... Thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. 
When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is this? For they did not know what it was. So Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any until, or excuse me, any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but in the morning it was full of maggots and it began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Then the people of the Lord called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And so what we find about um, 1,500 years later is Jesus shows up on the scene in John chapter 5, what we find is Jesus is uh, ministering to thousands of people during one of his teachings. The teaching goes late into the evening, and so he has the disciples go get uh, some uh, bread for them, some fish, and he multiplies the, the fish and the bread, and the people are all filled. In the very next chapter, the people are continuing to talk about the bread and the miracle of what Jesus has done. And what Jesus does in John chapter 6 is he brings it down to earth to them and he says, listen, I want you to understand you are talking about something that is for your stomach, but I'm trying to talk to you about something that's for your soul. You're talking about physical bread. I'm talking about spiritual bread. And Jesus clearly makes this connection as he calls himself the bread of life. And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to kind of make several connections between Jesus and, and the manna. And we're going to see how in some ways they are alike and in some ways, they are not alike. In some ways, they are a foreshadowing of what Jesus will accomplish in his life. And so number one in your notes, if you have your notes, um, it reads this. The manna offered physical life just as Jesus offers physical, spiritual, and eternal life. The people in the wilderness, they were concerned with survival, right? And so they would eat the bread. It would physically sustain them. They would survive. As Jesus shows up, is he concerned about their physical life? Yes, but he is more concerned about their spiritual life, but he is even more concerned with their eternal life. And so as the bread of life, Jesus shows up on the scene and he offers them all three as he represents himself as the bread of life. It is kind of like an Exodus 2.0, right? It's, it's, it's the, the visual of a people that are trapped in bondage. They are delivered from that bondage, but deliverance from the bondage isn't enough. They still need sustenance for day-in, day-out life, but even that isn't enough. They need eternal deliverance, and this is what Jesus does. So it's a greater exodus, it's a greater rescue, it's a greater deliverance that he offers to the people as he offers them all three levels of, of life. Number two in your notes, it reads that the manna came from heaven just as Jesus came from heaven. Now, some of these are going to seem very, very obvious, okay, but if you'll just stick with me, okay, they'll, they'll make sense, it'll kind of unfold, and it should make a little bit more sense. Scripturally, in Exodus 16, the Lord clearly speaks, and he says, listen, I am going to send bread from heaven. Well, later in John chapter 6, Jesus has to correct the people because the people keep talking about how Moses caused bread to fall from heaven. And Jesus emphatically corrects them, and he says, no, Moses wasn't the one that called bread down from heaven. This was your father in heaven. 
And in the same way that God in heaven sent the bread, the manna, he has sent me as the spiritual bread of life. He says, for I have come down from heaven, from, or to heaven uh, from the Father. And so Jesus had to get really specific with the people in John chapter 6. Part of the reason he had to get specific is because in that era of time, in Judea especially, there were Jewish religious leaders that had, uh, they had taken the word of God and they had taken what we called the oral law of God, which is basically like a commentary about the word of God. But then there was another layer regarding the word of God. And it was like almost what we would consider folklore or expectations or, you know, this is what I heard about this or this is what I heard about that. And what the people began to do is they began to take all of these peripheral things and they began to make them as if they were the word of God when in fact they weren't. And so there were several things that were related to the manna that the people in Jesus's culture, they had this expectation of, like they had an expectation when Messiah comes, he's going to find this, uh, this manna that Jeremiah had hidden, you know, thousands of years ago, the Messiah is going to reveal that and he's going to bring it into the open and that's how we're going to know he's the Messiah. Well, that's nowhere found in scripture. Uh, another thing, they, they assumed that Jesus, or excuse me, the Messiah would be one who in, you know, in likeness with Moses, that in some way he would call, uh, he would cause manna to fall from heaven. This is not scriptural. This is outskirts. This is speculation. These are false expectations in the same way that people in that day expected the Messiah to be a political leader. They expected him to be militant and to come with a conquering force. And it wasn't that, that, that scripture did not in some ways allude to a conquering king. It's that they read further into it than what they were intended to read into it. And the same way applies here for this manna. And so Jesus in John chapter 6, he really had to bring some correction or a corrective thinking to them so they understood the difference between manna from heaven and the bread of life from heaven. Number three in your notes, the manna was a gift from God just as Jesus is a gift from God. It's clear that the Lord says, look, even in, in spite of your grumbling and complaining, okay, it's irritating me, but I'm still going to bless you because I'm a good father, right? And so he is gifting them from heaven with manna for 40 years. In the same way, we find that Jesus is obviously a gift from God. Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul, this is what he says. He says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that anyone could boast. And so again, Jesus is emphasizing, listen, Moses, and Jesus wasn't taking away from Moses. He wasn't dishonoring Moses by any stretch of the imagination, but he was helping the people understand who Moses was and who Moses wasn't. And so Jesus says, look, I understand that, that you believe all this came, you know, through the hand of Moses, but what you have to understand is that n neither the manna nor your salvation comes from the work of any man. It is all a gift. It is unearned. It is the gift and the grace of God that he has given to us. Number four in your notes, the manna was not recognized at first just as Jesus was not recognized at first. So the people see the dew dissipate, and then they see this frosty stuff that's left over. 
they go to it and they say, what is this? And literally, uh, the Greek, there, there's a connection in the Greek to the term, what is it? And that is what the word manna means. What is it? And so there's this, this scene that you have where you have this, this canopy of this white flaky stuff all over the desert floor. And so the people walk up and they don't know what it is because no human had ever seen it before on the face of the earth. And so they didn't understand what it is. In the very same way as Jesus appears, the people do not recognize him for who he is. Number one, they've never seen anyone like him before because God has never been incarnate before, but they don't recognize him for who he is and it becomes an enormous deficit for them. Even his own family did not recognize him as Messiah until he had resurrected from the grave. Um, the people in his hometown where he grew up would question not only his messiahship, but they would even question like his popularity and his standing. How does he have so much influence? Isn't this Joseph's boy? He's the carpenter's kid, right? And, and so there was such insult hurled at Jesus uh, being born in a very common place that Jesus was treated as common. We find later the apostle John, what he would say? He would say, listen, he came into that which was his own, but they received him not. And what we find here is, is a very uh, important note that, that we, need to, uh, we need to remind ourselves of. In the same way that the manna, the first time that it was ever seen on the ground, it wasn't recognized. But the second time it showed up, they recognized exactly what it was. They knew exactly what it was. Why? Because they had tasted and seen what it was. In the same way Jesus, the first time he showed up, they didn't recognize who he was or what he was. But the second time he shows up, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father, right? So it's important for us to understand that even when we read certain texts that are confusing, how could these people see all this miraculous signs and wonders and just kind of isolate Jesus or shove him to the side? Well, that's because some of their eyes were blinded, but there's coming a day where no eyes will be blinded. He will be seen for who he is in his glory. And that's the day that we all look forward to. Number five in your notes, the manna was resented just as Jesus was resented. It's amazing to me later on when you, when you begin to read the narrative and connect the dots. And later in the book of Numbers, what we find is that the people become so disgruntled. You realize that the number one sin of the people of Israel was not idolatry. It was complaint. It was grumbling, as scripture calls it. And it wasn't just grumbling against their situation. It wasn't just grumbling against the leader of their situation. It was grumbling against the Lord because they felt that God had put them in the situation. And so even to some of the most finite places, they're frustrated with the Lord. Listen to what Numbers 11.6 says. A, a committee has come to Moses, and this is what they say. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. They are frustrated with the blessing of the Lord. You realize the day before God shows up with manna, they're wondering how they're going to survive. They're just wondering, am I going to live? Are my babies going to eat tomorrow? That's all they're consumed with. But as they receive the Lord's provision, there comes a point in their life where that provision becomes very common to them. That provision, that blessing, that gift becomes 
an expectation more than it comes becomes something that you receive with, with gratitude, right? It's like I, I heard a story one time in a, in a leadership uh, talk. They were talking about how um, if you're a leader of an organization, uh, uh, in, in, you know, year five of your organization, it may be time where you successfully um, are financially at a place where you can give a Christmas bonus to your employees. And so the first year you give them a Christmas bonus and they are so excited. They're so thankful. Year two, you're able to give them an even bigger bonus. And so you double the bonus and they receive it. And they are so thankful. But by year three, there is no longer this sense of gratitude for what's been given. Now there's an expectation. And if that bonus is not received, then all of a sudden there's, there's disgruntledness, right? And so oftentimes this is a, a huge lesson for all of us that we have to be so careful not to allow the blessing of the Lord to become so common to us that we lose ourselves, that, that we forget who we're dealing with in all of this. Uh, I was reading a study one time about the manna years ago, um, and some of the calculations, it's hard to do accurate calculations with this because we really don't know how many people were in the wilderness. Some say a million, some say, you know, three, four million. It just depends on how you do the numbers. And so this study took kind of a median, okay? So it said, okay, well, let's just average it out. Let's take, let's say that there were a million five. Let's say that there were that many people, and then they took the measurements that the Lord uh, spelled out in, in this chapter. At the end of the chapter, the Lord says, for each person, you take this amount of food, you know, manna and stuff like that. They do all the math, and they calculate it up with 1.5 million people. And what it comes out to be is that the Lord, every single day for 40 years, was issuing 4.5 million pounds of manna every single day day. Listen to me. That type of provision is not a common provision. That is miraculous in the highest way, but yet it had become so common to them that they began to resent it. In the same way when Christ was here as the bread of life, he was resented. He even said this in, in you know, the, the, the meatiest part of the book of John. He said, they hated both me and my father. Later, he would talk to his disciples and he would say, listen, if they hated me, if they persecuted me, if they spoke ill of me, they're going to speak ill of you. And so he was communicating that he was resented, especially by the Jewish leaders. And so both of these are in their likeness. They were resented. Another connection, number six, is that the manna would corrupt, but Jesus was not corrupted. His body wasn't corrupted. Uh, we see where the manna, the Lord said, look, if you take today's portion and you eat some and you save the rest for tomorrow, when you wake up, that bread is not going to be good. And that is exactly what happened. They woke up the next day. There were maggots inside of the manna. It smelled disgusting. It was all of this stuff. And so the manna was corrupted. Well, Jesus, a big part of his crucifixion and his death and even his burial um, in the Old Testament, there were all these prophecies about his, how his body, Messiah's body, would not be corrupted. It would not see corruption. It would not see this. It would not see that. And what we find in, in John's gospel is the fulfillment of all this. You remember as Jesus hangs on the cross, he dies. 
there's an earthquake, there's all this stuff. The soldiers go and to expedite the death of the three individuals, they would break their legs so that they would asphyxiate quicker and so they would die quicker. And so they did it to the, to the outer two thieves. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that his life had already been taken. And so they did not corrupt his body. They did not break his legs. And so in this way, again, it's a little bit of, of a difference here. You have manna that does corrupt, but Christ who doesn't corrupt. And, and these are, um, that's, a, that's a type of typology. Number seven in your notes, the manna was sent to test their faith just as Jesus tests our faith. Again, the Lord says, listen to the people, I want you to go and collect enough for you and your family for today. And the reason I'm doing this is to test your faith so that you will trust me for tomorrow. Man, I'm telling you, as a miraculous of a provision as that is that we have talked about and I have accentuated, as miraculous and amazing as it is, these people were literally living day by day for their sustenance. They couldn't collect food. We got canned food that we've had in our cabinet for five years. They couldn't do stuff like that. They couldn't pack it away in the fanny pack. They had to eat for today. I've heard, you know, uh, there have been times I've lived paycheck to paycheck. That's a struggle. But there is a big difference of living paycheck to paycheck and day to day. Very big difference. And these people were living from day to day. But it was the Lord's doing because he wanted to increase their trust in him. This is the way that he would test. The Lord tests our faith uh, all through scripture. You can see so many times the Lord, you know, one of the most uh, profound scriptures I think is in Genesis 22, I think, where the, the simple sentence, it's like, you know, just a few words. It says, and God tested Abraham. It's like the most sobering, no explanation, no Abraham did this and this is why I'm testing him. Nothing, it's just God tested Abraham. But what you find as you read scripture and as you live, as you walk with the spirit of God, what we find is that when we are tested, there's a purpose behind the testing. There's, there's a fruitfulness that God is after in us that can't be manifested without pushing us in our faith. Um, a couple of years ago when I was uh, in a master's program, um, I had never had a professor that would give us exams online. And I'm, I'm like in a master's program, you're writing papers and all this kind of stuff. And, and this guy shows up and he's a, a renowned professor at the university and I'd heard all this stuff about him. And I see where we have like six exams back to back to back. And I'm like, man, this is cake. This is easy A's, right? And then I opened the exam. <laughs> and I'm telling you right now, I would have rather written 10 pages per exam than taken those dadgum exams. <laughs> um, they were open book. You could use your laptops, they, they were the, but they were the most difficult exams I had ever taken. And I'm, not I'm talking about multiple choice, multiple choice. It was the hardest things I rather would have written. What I learned through that process was this. I couldn't understand. Pastor Glenn and I were in the same uh, uh, course together. And what I could never understand was this. It was so frustrating. I said, why does he have to make it this difficult? I would always ask, why is he making it so difficult? But on the other side of, of that course, what I found is that um, I didn't, you know, the exam pushed me out to here, where I was having to do things here and research and do, do all this stuff out to here. 
And what I found is that I didn't grow to there. My knowledge base didn't increase all the way out here, but it did increase. It didn't go from here to here, but it did go from here to here. And even though there are times when God will test our faith, he, he sometimes will push us to utilize our faith in a place that we can't sustain our faith. We, we were never intended to live in that moment, but God will oftentimes stretch us here so that we can begin to live here. Does that make sense? And so in the same way, the manna, this was the Lord testing the people, not out of he wasn't being punitive. He wasn't doing it out of frustration. He was doing it to get everything he could out of them. And that's the same that he does for us. Number eight in your notes, and we got to hurry here. Number eight in your notes, the manna was for Israel, yet Jesus is for all. There is this gross misconception about the Old Testament that God was only concerned with the salvation of the people of Israel in the Old Testament. And, it, and, and frankly, it's because so much of the Old Testament, it's about Israel. It's not about the world. It's a concentrated effort of choosing a people to express the love of God to. But when you really are objective and you look through the Old Testament, you find time and time again where God sends Joseph to Egypt to save the Egyptians. And not just Egyptians. The Bible says the, the world. There were people from all over the world coming to Egypt. God raised up Joseph to save those people. God sends his messenger Jonah to the most vile and wicked people on the face of the planet in, uh, in Nineveh. God has always been concerned about humankind, but what we find here with the manna, this is a very concentrated you know, incident with, with Israel. What we find with Jesus is that Jesus is not isolated to the Israelites. He's not isolated to the Jews. He's not isolated to the Americans. Jesus is for the whole world. And so what you find when you shift a little bit from the Old Testament to the New, what you find is a different type of concentration. It's as if God was magnified on the Israelite people. He was going to do something through them, but he had to concentrate through them so that he could spread everything out as we approach the New Testament. So it's not that God now loves the world more than he ever did. The Bible makes it clear the plan of salvation was before the creation of the world and for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He is the savior of the world. And so even though the manna was just for Israel, Jesus is for the world and both were for their salvation. Number nine, the manna was the fulfillment of a promise just as Jesus was the fulfillment of a promise. Now granted, the promises that the Lord made with the manna were like in a 12-hour time frame, Okay. But the promises that were made of the Messiah were like 1,200 years, okay? So I understand that there is a difference here, but there's still promises. It makes no difference if I say, Pastor Justin, I will give you a ride home when we end service. Or if I say, Pastor Justin, in two years from now, I'm going to give you a ride home on August 3rd, you know, whatever the year is. There's no difference. There's still a promise. The difference is, will I fulfill those promises? And the Lord was faithful to fulfill the promises with the manna, just as he is faithful to fulfill the promise with Christ Jesus. Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and birth, give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. More than 300 prophecies of the Old Testament were promised about the coming Messiah. I mean, major things, world, world shaking things, but also very, very minor things. It's incredible when you begin to look at the, the minute 
details and then you look at the mega details and how specific the, the 30 pieces of silver, that he would be pierced, that his bones wouldn't be crushed, that his body wouldn't be corrupted, that he would uh, use a borrowed tomb. Even uh, kind of poetically, um, where Jesus is born is, is the town of Bethlehem. The, the word Bethlehem, what it literally means is the house of bread, as Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He comes from the house of bread. And so you see all of these prophetic declarations all through the, the Old Testament, and they find their fulfillment of the promise in the life of Jesus. Number 10 in your notes, the manna was available during a window of opportunity, just as Jesus is available during a window of opportunity. Scripture says that whatever manna they did not collect, it would melt away. Now, the next day there would be more, but there was a window of opportunity every single day where you could collect the manna and you could knead it into uh, bread that you could eat. It would melt away. So there was a very limited window of opportunity every day to receive the manna. And whether or not we like to hear this or not, there is a limited window of opportunity when it comes to receiving salvation from the Son of God. Hebrews 9.27 reminds us that people are destined to die once, and after that is the judgment. Our lives, uh, the Scripture says, are like vapors. They're fleeting. They're, they're like smoke that you can't, you can't, you see it, but you can't grab a hold of, and then in an instant, it is obliterated. It's gone. We're reminded over and over again, and even in our own lives, as we watch people pass through life, we're reminded that the gospel is for this era of time, and it does not extend beyond this moment in time. And so there is a window of opportunity for both of these things. And then finally, number 11, the manna was new every morning, just as God's mercies are new every morning. That manna was like clockwork, just as faithful as the sunrise, just as faithful as God is to his word. And in the same way, we're reminded in Lamentations, which is in the Old Testament, it's before the time of Jesus, but it finds its fulfillment because of Jesus. This is what Jeremiah would write. He said, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we praise God that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the true manna from heaven. Amen. 